0: Clay, in this episode of Deadwood called Jewel's Boot is Made for Walking, Charlie Otter starts to take his uh, fire marshal responsibilities very seriously when he Mm. pings Tom Nuttall for not having enough iron separating his stovepipe from the walls or whatever the problem is. The place Mm -hmm. is going to go up in flames and burn the whole town down, which is foreshadowing something that we never get to see in season four, but who would have thought? Um, But anyway, have you ever gone through a home inspection? um only
1: when we bought our condo right um yeah. do you remember was basically it? i don't remember much of it i remember it basically being like the uh <clears throat> the um the training section of a, of a video game only it was like how to how to own a home
0: yeah a lot of because tutorializing coming at you yeah hit the, a lot the a of button. gaming
1: tutorials yeah where it's like <laughs> and this is the thing that controls your hot water if the water goes out make sure you take this thing open it up and pump it it looks fine okay yeah. great yeah Are you taking notes i mean i'm not but
0: i'm gonna send you a report at the end of this so don't worry about it i'm just showing you now so you get a sense of what it is i uh, right, we yeah. we did ours and they were they're very useful. Obviously, you don't want to go through the like the COVID era thing where people were just selling houses without inspections, or whatever. So mm. I, I am glad it's that- still happening, man. Yeah, it's
1: we were uh, we were trying to buy a place last year, and uh, we put our uh, how much money we wanted to go down, and then we also said we would do uh, anything under twenty thousand on the home inspection we would waive, which is essentially waiving the home inspection. Yes. Yeah. And even still they said no yep. and went with someone who just flat out waived the home inspection well, and, and offered
0: more money as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they're dealing with their faulty stovepipe right now and you're yeah. not having to worry uh-huh. about it. So yeah, ours was, um, ours are interesting. We used the same guy cause I liked him for all the mm-hmm. houses that we've bought at this point. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's like a six hour process depending on your house. It, it, yeah, it can be, it's a long time. It can be a real long time with this guy. And then he sends you a a huge packet with like every minor thing has like this huge red flag next to it. And he's like, it's like the small Nick in vinyl siding on the West side of the house. It's like, please note this needs to be repaired. And eventually you just have to figure out what's important and what isn't. We did have, the only other time was,
1: um, I forget. I don't know if it was for an insurance reason or a town based thing. Anyway, someone who came in and basically gave us the Charlie Otter treatment yep. where, we, we we live in, a, in an old house that's split into four units and and we share a common area with two of them with with one of the other units <clears throat> and uh w- what we had to do in order to do the next step of whatever it was we were doing see how much i paid attention um <laughs> was we had to put in like emergency floodlights and exit signs yes yeah and stuff which is <laughs> you know it's just it's just a stairway but since it's a multiple unit building it's it, gotta be it, it needs to have all this stuff up to code yep and then i think if i remember correctly we addressed this stuff and they were like what oh yeah yeah whatever yeah
0: and so you, you move know, on yeah that's what it is i mean it's kind of apparent this is a, uh, I i mean i tried to bring up something relevant to the episode but that's the uh the the argument here things are changing right and, mm-hmm. and tom or uh tom nuttle does not does not jive with the things that are changing yeah. Yeah. Living in a multifamily is obviously much uh much different than a single family. My parents owned a triple decker for a while but had to give it up just because of the the pain in the ass that that eventually becomes with the as you're oh, saying, really. the f- floodlights in the hallways and stuff like that. Yeah. Tenants yeah. who can't change a light bulb themselves and things like that. So you you end up wondering what am I getting out of this? And then did you set the stove by uh, on fire.
1: Did the uh welcome everyone to middle aged men talking about real estate. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, did they own the building and they were renting out two of the units? Is that what they were doing?
0: They didn't live in the building, if that's what Oh, so they were renting out all three of them? Yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: <clears throat>
0: Worcester, home of the triple-decker, I guess. There's a lot of triple-deckers <laughs> in Somerville, though, aren't there? Right?
1: Yeah. We're actually looking for uh, a, a a a Two-family. Because two we we're going to uh, actually, us and Amanda and her husband are looking to, to find a place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Duplex or like side-by-side, I would imagine. Yeah. Whatever doesn't matter. It's usually it's usually top and bottom around here. Yeah, they have to they have to fit them in. Yeah, because we did the the upper lower. Um.
1: It's really frustrating though. Again, thank you guys for joining us on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as someone's not
0: dragging their foot across the upper floor clay, <laughs> we'll be fine.
1: Um, it's really frustrating because so many of the houses you look you know they pop up on the thing. And it's like two family eight bedrooms and you're like okay great and then you look at the actual breakdown and it's like the first level unit has two bedrooms one bathroom it's like okay and then the second unit has six bedrooms two floors mm-hmm. two bathrooms so like okay well this isn't exactly yeah what we're looking for here
0: once it was but one family just has to become an in-law to the other and they live in the in-law apartment and everybody's happy. essentially yeah, yeah. We are here to talk about Jules' Boot is Made for walking. This is Something Pretty. We're going to play the music. We'll be right back.
2: You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty.
0: Jewel's Boot is Made for Walking, directed by Steve Schill, written by Ricky Jay. The crippled jewel, no, no kidding. Yep, written by the uh, the card sharp in this series, the first season. The crippled Jewel limps to Doc Cochran's, hoping that he can fabricate a leg brace for her. A surprise guest arrives, Alma's father, Otis Russell. I love his cookies. Adams and Swearingen agree on a deal to get rid of the magistrate. Alma's father tells her that there has been some talk that she had something to do with her husband's death. Utter, in his new role as a fire commissioner, threatens to find Tom Nuttle if he doesn't make his saloon safer. Nuttle convinces Swearingen to make Con Stapleton sheriff. Bullock confronts Swearingen about Con Stapleton's appointment, but rejects the idea of himself as sheriff. The Reverend Smith delivers a sermon about circumcision to an ox. Al confronts Trixie and Saul <laughs> about their tryst. What can any one of us really fucking hope for, he says, except a moment here and there with a person who doesn't want to rob, steal, or murder us. So, it's the penultimate episode, Clay. It's always exciting when you get to say penultimate because it's only mm. going to happen three times in this series. And here we are with this episode Jules' Boot is Made for Walking. Um, I like this one. It falls into the uh, prestige HBO era of everything kind of climaxes in this episode before it gets to the finale. Uh, mm-hmm. most clearly through Al uh machinations of this one. He becomes more and more drunk as the episode goes on because he's going through a lot of stressful decisions and uh, measuring points, I guess, in what he wants to do. But what did you think of Jules' boot is made for walking? I thought it was good. Um, this, this this, one was
1: uh, <clears throat> It was one of the, the lesser quotable ones, I thought, but that's not a mark of quality or a lack of quality. But, yeah. Um, it had a lot of it, it was definitely a lot of jumping around to storylines, even though they were kind of weaving al through all of it to some extent but it 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 uh it definitely really did make me feel how much is going on in the town at the same time
0: yeah I think it's um the main focus or I guess like the uh because of we mentioned before, I feel that the show does a good job of making the episodes about one thing and then everyone revolves around that one thing and then they move on at the end of the episode. Uh, This one's about people thinking that the thing that is happening is what they... It's basically Doc Cochran sums up the episode when he he makes the boot for Jewel and he says, like, the first rule of medicine is that Latin phrase that I can't remember, but it's basically do do no harm is the first Mm -hmm. rule of medicine. Uh, And it's don't try to... Like, how do you know that trying to make a situation or something better won't actually make it worse through unintended consequences? Uh, And I think most of the storylines in this one are about that. So like, for example, you have Alma and her father showing up. Alma's been isolated because her husband was killed early and she's been having to deal with her gold claim all alone. And you'd think that her father showing up would be helpful to her. You think that Deadwood getting a sheriff would be helpful for Deadwood, but Mm -hmm. it's not the outcome that you'd expect or want. You think that Saul and Trixie finally having sex with each other uh, after pining for each other for so long would be something that would be a happy sort of celebration type thing, but that leads to bad outcomes because of Al and Seth and stuff like that. So I think it's uh, it's one of those episodes. It's showing you the, the the grass is always greener, and eventually, if what you want to happen happens, you might not be very happy with the outcome.
1: Yeah, I I that scene with the dock while it was good, um it's so cynical that's such a cynical way to a cynical interpretation of the do no harm thing Yep. because by that rationale why do anything you know yep um but yeah it definitely was the theme running throughout the thing and and it was yeah it, it made sense com- coming from him specifically that reading does track for his character because i feel like that's sort of the tightrope that he walks where he he wants to do good but he's also doesn't want to speak up so loud that he ends up making things worse yeah um
0: why do you think it's cynical i guess
1: well it's just <clears throat> the idea that if, if you are not doing something if you, if you're not doing something that could be good because it might cause unintended bad consequences then why do anything good ever or why do anything you know it's it's it seems like it's a it's a fairly cynical way to go through life
0: oh i see i i guess i look at him sort of um he's being cautious- like i i see it as he's he's aware in the way that he had in that episode where he says them moving to justify themselves do as much harm as those who set out to do harm basically mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it's a kind of i view it more as he's He's aware of the downsides in a way that the rest of the characters aren't, and well, I don't really know if I get a sense of like how bad Jewel could suffer from if he screws the boot up, is is sort of unclear to me. But mm-hmm. I guess that's his that's his take on it. Um, I don't really know what the downside would be for giving her that brace, but it doesn't seem like she's going to lose her leg or anything like that. So I, that's kind yeah, of the I, strangeness of it to me. I, I think there's a I think there's a.
1: Um, <clears throat> I don't know what the word is, but I think there's a, a, a way to look at it that isn't quite as cynical where he's saying that <clears throat> basically uh, the thing the thing that you think will be the solution might not be the right solution. Right. And you might have to think about something different that is the actual right solution. Yeah. Um, because – which is funny even still because he's like – if i make this boot for you it could fuck you up even worse than you already are that being said i've designed a boot for you You (laughs) i like i like her response she goes we wouldn't want that (laughs) right yeah i mean yeah like that's that's kind of i mean i think she's a good counterpoint to that argument where she's like how worse could it be yeah you know like
0: they've already shown the scene where she has to walk by herself to get to the docks uh, right place yeah
1: Yeah. and i you know that that idea of we shouldn't do something because there's a hundred reasons why you shouldn't, there's, we shouldn't do something that could work because there's a, a, a thousand reasons why it might not work Yeah, is, I don't know. I, I, I think you need that other end of it. Well, that other end that is, if, if you're looking at this outside of the show, it's just like as an ethos or whatever, yeah. Yeah. I think it, you need to have the side where it's like, okay, well it's about finding the right one, not just about the reasons why we can't do it. Yeah. There's, it's about finding the the right thing to do.
0: Yes, yeah, and I, I think it's um, I think it, it, yeah, I, I would I would agree with that, and think it's the the show is also, um, I think it's true to life in the form that like, a lot of the the stuff that comes at you is. Like it's rare that you go on a streak in life where things just kind of hit, and you you always notice it when you go on those little streaks where like everything just kind of works out for you for a little bit, mm-hmm. and then it always backfires, and always when um when things go wrong, they always seem to pile up at the same time for some reason. Uh, so I think it's just the kind of awareness of like the the constant, the constant outcomes of the good outcomes are not always a guaranteed thing to come through. And I think that the, the most of the plot lines are kind of saying that, that it's a, um, the, the idea that the thing that you're hoping for, the thing that you think is going to be the positive outcome, much like how the, when the town is forming its government, like thinking these things are going to amount to a good, bring you to a better place is actually kind of backfiring in a lot of, uh, different areas. I, I think it's the same for the character stories. It's just that the stuff that you expect to be a positive for you is ultimately going to be weighed down by some kind of uh, troublesome aspect that's attached itself to it. Yeah.
1: And there's also, I mean, there's a there's a certain monkey's paw element to it too where you kind of have to decide whether or not you can live with the unintended
0: consequences. How dare you, you talk about Silas Adam's mother like that? <laughs> monkey paw comment. He's talking about her hand. <laughs> You know, I, I actually um that brings that makes brings me to two great points about uh not my great points, but that, that brings me to two points about what makes the show great, I think. Um The show is the show does not think that its audience is stupid, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh there are two minor points that do that this the first one is relatively small but the second one is more important than we can talk about it um when so the episode kind of involves still al trying to basically like seduce silas to work for him throughout this and his other underlings are getting a little bit jealous which is a funny side plot or they're worried about silas taking over but the reason that they're worried i think is done so well in that scene where al Uh, says hello to Silas, and he says something like, you're clean, shorn, and well-shaven. He's like, even your mother wouldn't recognize you. She'd have to smell you all over to recognize that it's you, Silas. And he's like, (laughs) meaning my monkey mother. That's such a beautiful little thing because the rest of Al's underlings have spent the entire season not understanding what Al is saying to them. And they don't get the references that he's making. And E.B. Farnham always has the restating what Al says, and it pisses Al off and it gets him irritated. The reason that Al likes Silas is that Silas gets the reference that he made last episode.
3: Shorn and groomed to a fucking fairly well. She never recognized. You have to smell you all over to know you was hers. My monkey mother. Take a table out of the traffic, huh?
1: Yeah, he's like any... uh, College, any any freshman college kid who goes in and starts dropping Aquatine Hunger Force references <laughs> when, when you see the person across the room who laughs and nods, you're like, all right, I gotta
0: hang out with that immediately. Ingratiate some stuff with that, so I I like that. Um, I think that that's you really can
1: clever. sense you can sense a fight a, 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 you can sense a a, a a Fight Club poster on a wall from a mile away. <laughs>
0: I haven't seen Fight Club in a long time. I think I'll like I think I'd like Fight Club more at this point in my life than when I watched it in college. Have you seen it recently?
1: No, it's been a while. Yeah, I know it's it's one of those movies that I think has been uh uh in, <laughs> incorrectly reappraised by a lot of people in in the hand, last handful of years, you mean, which has made me want to watch it again.
0: Wait, incorrectly reappraised or just like re- cuz I would I think it's I think I would understand it more now than my misunderstandings of it before. Yes. Is that what you mean? No,
1: that well, yeah, sort of. I think I think the reappraisal of it is a lot of uh, bad faith reappraisal of it, where people are looking at what they conceive Fight Club to be and condemning it because of that, and not actually realizing what the story in the movie actually oh, is
0: saying. I guess I that don't. Kind of I thing. guess I don't know the modern reappraisal then or anything like that. But they, yeah, maybe I mean, we should do like that on Patreon or something.
1: Yeah, that'd be fun. It's one of those movies that it's like always shows up on, you know. Five, five if if they're really into if they if they're really into this movie maybe you should right, you don't know, not date, date this guy yet.
0: New York, if they have a podcast and they watch Fight Club you shouldn't, you yeah, shouldn't date yeah like Fight guy.
1: Club Heat the guy you know good great movies for
0: whatever reason <laughs> Terminator yeah
1: turn turn a lot of people off for some
0: reason <laughs> I watched Terminator with Amy it was the first time seeing Terminator oh the other really
1: time. yeah oh it's so good
0: that, not to give not to ruin Patreon. Uh, specials, that Amy really liked it. I was struck mm-hmm. by how simple the first Terminator is. Um, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a slasher movie, basically.
0: Yeah, or like a, a chase sequence, just an extended yeah. chase mm-hmm. sequence. Uh, mm-hmm. But the uh, the funny thing that I thought about is that, like, In Terminator 2, a lot of the lore is really great. And by far the worst scenes in the first Terminator are when they explain what's going on in the movie. Like when they stop running and they're like, I'm from the future and the Terminators are coming back. It's like, wow, this is some of the worst parts of this movie. But it all became much better in the second part when they focused on it. So who knows?
1: Yeah, I think they just found the right way to... Because the lore in the second one becomes... So much like heavier because there actually is real world connections within the, the, like with the Dyson stuff, there's actually connections to be made with that future instead of just Michael Bean huffing his way through talking about different Terminator models and how they were easier to spot because they had rubber skin. And (laughs) Linda Hamill just going like, yeah,
0: okay, cool. Also, Bean dies strangely in the first movie. Um, He falls down the stairs basically yeah
1: he he caught he sort of just like kind of consumes uh, consumes uh what's the word i'm looking for uh succumbs Succumb. to his wounds from falling more down or, less. or less <laughs> from falling down yeah like well he kind of he he's i think he like does he blow him up with the yeah he, he blows gives him a stick of dynamite
0: right? he puts it in the terminator and he kind of rolls down the stairs and the terminator blows up but you you would yeah, think I that think... he would blow up with it as like part of the but then they, she can't um stroke his face or anything yeah you need the goodbye. body yeah. yeah
1: yeah i think it's just i think it's more like he's he's on his way out before that point he yeah. just he just loses it yeah
0: uh anyway for deadwood i love the silas thing I love <laughs> so we that. got
1: so we got terminator we got uh fight club uh, houses yeah fight club <laughs> we got re- real estate
0: we haven't recorded in a long time obviously the headlines i'm i'm looking at my bing.com homepage, clay and it's just it's inspiring <laughs> me to talk about these things uh, the, so the stylist thing? can we
1: talk about what Sidney Sweeney wore to the premiere last night so sexy.
0: I, I saw something about that what people people were wearing naked clothes or something to the Oscars. Is that what I was reading something I don't like see through more negligee. Um, are award shows less meaningful these days? Were they ever meaningful to begin with? I feel the Oscars used to mean something. I don't know if yeah. they mean anything anymore. Although Klosterman on yeah. a recent podcast I was listening to, Chuck Closeman made a good point that um, the Oscars are almost more interesting for what they get wrong than they are about what they get right.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good way to look at it, honestly. I mean, we've we've talked a number of times across the years about going back and looking at the stuff that didn't win and how so many of the things that did are just... I, I've been listening to this podcast called Blank Check where they, they go through um, filmographies of directors who basically have a hit and then are given a blank check to make whatever they want
4: yeah
1: (laughs) and so like i did a whole series about sam raimi and john carpenter and michael mann and stuff but one of the one of the terms they use a lot when they talk about certain movies are movies that don't exist so it's like these movies when you go through someone an actor's filmography and there's like five movies between the two big hits that you've never heard of it's like oh well those movies don't exist right and it's they just they all sound like fake movies And uh, the last handful of Oscar years have had a number of movies that don't exist, (laughs) winning stuff.
0: Oh, you mean being nominated eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, a lot of it's just kind of forgettable. Uh, I haven't seen the movie that won this year. Have you seen that one? Uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? I think so, yeah. Yes, I did. I saw that. Was that good? It was good. I liked it. Yeah. It was good. Um, The other thing about Silas... Not about Silas. But the, the other subtle thing that I really like the show that I think he respects, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about him, is um, Otis Russell, who's Alma's father. The uh, dad from Boy Meets World. Yes. Who's better known as the dad from Boy Meets World. Also, I would like to point out,
1: I have a lot of respect for him. I don't know who controls this, but his uh, IMDb profile picture. Yeah. Yeah is uh from the episode of Miami Vice he was on oh. where he played Crockett's old pal Evan <laughs> who is now in too deep. Right. It's a great episode, great episode the first season of Miami Vice.
0: Great some 41 cult hits as well. Um yeah, the boy meets dad father shows up and is apparently the father to Alma. <laughs> boy, and
1: boy meets dad. Boy meets dad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which is the the very, the very adult version of Boy Meets World. Um, that's while Boy Meets Dad is the subheading for Picard season three. Yeah, that's true. What a great, what a great season of television that is.
5: There's some talk that you did Brahm in. From his parents? They have raised the possibility.
1: As it happens, I was not present when Brom fell.
5: You have to admit it's a suspicious sequence. The man who was is in the camp. Given their view of the marriage,
3: I doubt he tells the true story of how Brom died. But he would verify that I wasn't there.
5: I didn't mean to upset you. It's always about the money, but in certain circles. But not here. hmm?
0: I suppose here as well. In certain circles. The father reminds me of, remember we had that scene earlier in, in one of the earlier episodes where E.B. is talking to himself and we weren't sure, we, we talked about how it's kind of difficult to recognize what E.B. is talking about or what mm-hmm. what his point of view is when he's in that monologue mm-hmm. where he's talking about him, uh, himself, viewing himself as Al and he's sort of like talking about uh, other people as if he was Al Swearingen. This one's unique, like I think the show just does a really subtle job of characters who are shit heels and manipulators, the show does not outright say that to you about them. And if you're not really paying attention, you cannot, you, you might miss what's going on with the father in this episode. I think like they, they kind of get to the point when he talks to Bullock at the very end, but for most of this, it's extremely subtle writing about his intentions and like the things he chooses to talk about at certain points with other characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what you thought about him, but I I think it's just, like, a tremendous, like... You know, and we've learned a little bit from Alma's backstory that she married Brom to help her father get out of debt. That was the reason for the marriage. She explained that. He has these subtle things where he, like, kisses her on the lips. There's her uncomfortableness about... He plays the coin game with Sophia that makes Alma uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. He tries to leave with the gold nugget, and she has to remind him that it's hers. Uh, There's just a lot of... A lot of subtle things that really add up to showing him for the character that he is, which the other characters in the show tend to recognize immediately.
1: Yeah, I was kind of surprised she reacted that way to the coin game. That's just that's just day one, Grandpa stuff, right yeah. there.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's hinting at the sexual abuse that seems to have come from him to her. Ah, uh, yes, she, she, he's, he's grooming young children.
1: Ah, yes, I did not necessarily pick up on that specifically. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I was. Uh, um, I don't remember his storyline from when i watched through the first time yeah and i was a little bit surprised when bullock was like this guy is a is a con man or whatever because i i wasn't totally sure how they were playing him Farnum recognizes
0: he, it first sorry if i don't know if you said Farnum, i might have misheard but Farnum surprisingly recognizes him when he's looking through the window yes adam
1: yeah, yeah. Th- that that was the one where i i wasn't sure because eb is his own ass about everything so i wasn't totally sure if what he was seeing was actually what he was seeing he
0: knows a worm when he sees one i guess Yeah. yeah
1: and i guess the thing with with the dad was i wasn't totally sure how they were playing him because he comes off as so run of the like he they play him fairly straight
0: yeah he's pretty boring as a character
1: yeah but all the stuff you're talking about that he does are 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 these kind of little kind of slightly uh, off center things that that make him feel a little bit a little bit um yep. iffy Yep. but I and I guess what I guess I was kind of expecting for them to lean into it a little bit more and tip their hand a little bit more yeah um it's so but subtle I feel like the, he does, he does his yeah. worst
0: when he's talking when she explains about the gold claim and he brings up the fact that people back home think you murdered him and you might want me to be on your side about this stuff when you have to come back home, you know? Yeah.
1: And I thought the place where they really tipped it was when he, uh, implies that Bullock is into Alma. And then he says, I have a wife and kid, and he's like, yeah, who cares?
0: Yeah, I'm a man who understands that we're ruled by our passions, Mr. Bullock, which Bullock is. He's right about that. Yeah, that's the the most the most egregious point is at the end where he's like, yeah, why don't you go upstairs and have sex with my daughter? And then we start start fixing up this gold claim that I've come to I've come to take. Yeah, so he's um dislikable. I, I'm always struck that Farnham recognizes him for what he is very quickly by watching mm. it which is uh i love that
1: scene watching farnham and that other Richardson. Shit bring di- yeah. dinner out <laughs> was just was very funny
0: cut a of beef off the chuck rhubarb because he's he's
1: still farnham still is acting as though he's in a completely different show because he still has this weird shakespearean villain vibe to him where he speaks in the shadows so eloquently and then just stumbles over his own stupid face when he's talking to anybody else. <laughs> yeah. It's it's really funny. I really enjoy it. Yeah. He's <laughs> He is and the main. he does Yeah, and he does the thing like he he even kinda does sort of a <clears throat> a pale impression of what he thinks the kind of person Al is. Yep. When his buddy's like, Can I look through the glass? And he's like, Sure. When you get a full head of hair, <laughs> asshole, and then he just walks away,
0: Richardson becomes a fan favorite very quickly. Uh, they recognize that Miltz recognized that they had something with him, and they, they'll change his okay. character a little bit. But he's he becomes a very prominent part of the show going forward. Um, may I see, Mister Farnham? Um, yeah, I, I, the the father. You know, it's just a great example of. I think it does a lot of just exploring what Alma's backstory is like, about it also, it gives another reason besides her wanting to have sex with Bullock, why she might want to stay in Deadwood because mm. she can't go back to him. Really? So now that her husband's dead, she can't go back home. She has to stay in Deadwood. Bullock is the kind of protector that I think she subconsciously thinks that she needs because B- Hickok is gone at this point. So mm-hmm. she she's attracted to Bullock, but I think that that explains a little bit further why she is so attracted to him because she sees him as the the ability to hold on to what is hers before it, other people, her lecherous family, come and try to take it away from her. Daddy issues. Yeah. Yeah. And Bullock has his own daddy issues too. I'm sure he does. Uh, anything else about the dad? <laughs> the father um i like how he ends every conversation with characters he goes like wonderful yeah terrific
1: <laughs> you know it's funny uh one of the the bits that actually kind of made me uh, squint my eyes at him a little bit was when Farnum brings out the food and then he offers him cigars and he doesn't say no thank you blah, blah, blah. he just goes
0: "Ah, we got our own smokes yeah we got our own smokes i don't want this i don't want this trash that you're peddling over here that's a that's a nice dining room though they 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 got the I don't know who gets to eat there during breakfast when everyone yeah. else is out ass to ankles uh, in the in the the other room but you got to rent the, the big space to get the, the knocking off on.
1: everybody else's chewing angle
0: that's right that's a that's a good line too that's a quotable line can't say it was quotable yeah.
1: that one and uh, uh,
0: saucy words good thing you're handy with the snatch yeah <laughs> Uh, that's my my fantasy that maybe Amy would say that to me, but it's never actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, I, I the the dining I mean, they scenes.
1: Got, they got like they got like books you can get if <laughs> it's really an issue.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well like it's tough to rent that on Kindle. I'm not gonna go out and buy that, I don't think. <laughs> uh the canteen scenes always lead to funny dialogue. Must be Charlie and uh Charlie and Joni Stubbs are out there talking yeah. to each other, but Charlie's always good for a quote. Uh, The other things that are going on is that Stapleton gets put in as sheriff, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which uh, leads to some great scenes with Seth and Al and Stapleton himself.
1: I I, I find the the evolution of, of Al and Bullock very, very interesting because you come away from this episode thinking that Al would prefer Bullock to be the sheriff. Yes, he would. When... You know, by any uh, sort of TV show logic, you would think that would not be the case. But Al, I think Al is still has his eye on legitimacy. And I think he knows that Bullock being the sheriff equals legitimacy.
0: Yeah, I, I think he's, you know where you stand with Bullock. And he's dealing with Magistrate Claggett and Stapleton who do not have like their intentions are not clear. Yeah like the obviously the running concern through Al is this is that the magistrate is still trying to scam him out of more money to pay off this warrant that he doesn't want to pay, and that's his idea of what the law is so that a lot of that conversation between al and Seth involves like Al just does not think that the the government can be legitimate in any way he's he's used mm-hmm. to the Claggets of the world, and Bullock has a sort of uh Almost naive vision that like it doesn't have to be this way. It could be another way, and Al finds that very appealing. I I like Al's quote though. he's like, he's like, you tell me to do this, do that. I'd listen. You're not a fucking whore. He has <laughs> 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 yeah, some other things. Um, oh, I can't remember what that that final that that line. Oh, he's like. <laughs> He's like, I'd, follow you. I'd, I'd go downstairs for that swearing in. I'd follow your career with great interest.
3: <laughs> Separate from all them bribes we put up, I paid... $5,000 to avoid being the object of fireside ditties about a man that fled a murder war and then worked very hard to get his camper next by the territory only to have them serve the warrant of him and to face the six-foot drop into the cocksucker magistrate's pocket. The money goes, after which he sends a message. The 5000 will need company if I'm to be off the hook. I give you the law. It doesn't have to be like that. Now, if you were a fucking sheriff and you said do this, do that, I'd consider it because you're not a fucking whore. I have personal responsibilities. I'd go downstairs without fucking swearing in and I'd follow your career because you're one of those pants in the balls who thinks the law can be honest. I don't want it. Hell, I do lots of things I don't want to do. You think you're the only one? Well, you should have been here when Tom Noto was pissing in my ear. I think you'd be all right as sheriff.
5: Listen, I'm only talking to you because my partner's fucking that whore.
1: Yeah, I, I just really, I'm continuously, uh, I continue to be tickled by how this has moved away from being the Al versus Seth show. Yes. Which they kind of set up a little bit in the first couple episodes, but then quickly turns into something for lack of a better term, more realistic as far as how all these characters uh, um, interact with each other.
0: Yeah, people don't always like each other, but it doesn't lead to an epic battle, I guess, all the time. Um, A lot of drama gets that, I think, which is that the conflict does not always end in a... You know, to quote Star Trek, you don't have to blow up the universe to be the end result of of where you're going to get to with a conflict. And these two do it well. Um, And Al, or Seth in his... um, Naivete and stupidity uh, exposes the Saul and Trixie thing, which is key to Al's development later on in the episode too. Um, I like that scene between Al and Saul after he figures. Uh, the scene where uh, where Seth walks in on those two having sex is also one when he grabs the little piece of uh, like whatever the hell that thing is. And he's like, mm-hmm. "This is what I came for." I Have to get out. Mm-hmm.
1: I was uh, I was surprised that the way that that sex scene unfolds felt like it wasn't the first time that they had sex. Okay. But well, just because of like the the way that she presents it to him and then he's like, well, why do you have to say it like that? And then she starts like doing this weird like role playing thing. Uh huh. It just it seemed to me as though this was something they had done before.
0: Oh, interesting. No, I think this is the first time. Um,
1: I assumed I assumed it was, but it was just it was a little hard to parse given given the way it it unfolded.
0: Yeah, she has some line about. I think she's being sarcastic. Basically, she's like my cherry's getting in the way. Like you want? Yeah, I. I I
1: I didn't know if it if she was just joking straight up or if she was like it, it was a sort of familiarity with that sort of intimacy yeah that felt like it was something that they had done before, you know oh, so. yeah
0: I read it as she's trying to being her job as a prostitute, she's trying to sell her services but not make it to make it also subtly obvious that she's there because she wants to be there is the way mm-hmm. that I read it, so maybe that's that's what creates the sense of familiarity because she's 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 offering her services in the way that she normally would. But she's trying to hint to the fact that there's something else driving her beyond just, you know, that's her mm-hmm. profession, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that leads to uh, that upsets Al, drives Al a little bit more crazy. Um, Al's also been driven more and more upset by seeing Reverend Smith, which he sees a, f- a few times in this one. The Reverend Smith has taken the turn for the worse. Um, he's sermonizing to oxen penises um, in the thoroughfare he is blathering it seems a little bit more he repeats himself quite a bit um one of the reviews that i was that i thought was insightful was that um his sickness has given the rest of the the town a like quote-unquote legitimate reason to ignore him in the way that they always wanted Mm. to ignore him Mm -hmm. um and also he obviously ties in with jewel because they're the two that have become the most stricken with something that is, uh, making them uh, not sick, but uh, it, it, they're not functioning in the way that the rest of the society tends to view as a normal way to function.
1: Yeah. The Reverend is really starting to turn into like a, a sick dog, basically, you know, the way he sort of is, you know, when, when a dog gets to a certain age and it can't kind of start, it starts, wobbling around and can't really see that well and it's always kind of panting and stuff and it's it's always kind of just like heads moving around looking for something but he has that kind of feel about him where he's just doing the best he can to just stay alive essentially um and whether or not he is uh, uh he doesn't seem to be as guarded about what's wrong with him now but I, I think he's probably past the point where that's even an option
0: yeah you you wonder if he's if he's even capable of seeing it that way because he, he seems to have um he seems to have found the word of god again if, or it seems to bring him happiness in the way that he was previously claiming that he couldn't find happiness um because andy Crane returns in this one too and that's another one of those like I, I i went out looking for what i thought i wanted but i couldn't find it and he keeps returning to gambling in the other camps that he's visited. And he can't seem to stay on the straight and narrow. And now he comes back to Deadwood to try to uh, reconcile that thing. But he runs into the Reverend who uh, he sees as inspirational. But the Reverend is obviously very ill at this point And uh, not someone that is super helpful to him in what he's looking for.
1: Yeah, Andy continues his uh, his role on the show of rolling in for one scene saying a bunch of stuff that we didn't actually see happen and kind of have a hard time tracking what he's talking about and yep. then disappearing for the rest of the episode. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he comes back in and he's talking about this stuff. And I'm like, geez, I didn't even realize he left. Yeah, he's, he's been having the time of his life over in, uh, in Tombstone or whatever.
0: <laughs> so I gave him all that money, I told him to get himself a new clan suit or whatever and get yeah. the hell out of there. But yeah, apparently he's made a lot of distance. He's traveled quite far to other camps around the area, but it all happens over quickly. Uh, and then I guess that there is just, it's just Al that's left. Oh,
1: don't forget about the, uh, the impending
0: race war. Oh yeah. Yeah. What'd you think of that stuff? I didn't remember that. That was something that I was kind of surprised by. I don't, I didn't remember that the race war stuff actually gets brought up again. Um, mm. maybe that'll look, uh, end up looking kind of foolish depending on how the 12th episode goes, but I didn't remember it, um, ever being escalated from Al being concerned about it in the prior episode, but obviously it, it does.
1: Mm. It makes sense to me as a, a tactic from Tolliver because he he played that card in the last episode as far as how he was choosing to deal with, uh, or he, how he was choosing to absolve himself from having to deal with the situation with the two hoopleheads or hopheads. Yep. And in this this one now, he's using it as a... Opportunity to possibly get rid of the Chinese guys and possibly to get rid of Al, even. Yes, depending yep. on how the uh, how the worm turns on on him.
0: Sai played it pretty well. <clears throat> I, I I thought that scene mm. and Sai realizing what's going on was kind of a. Uh, I don't know if I ever underestimated Sai, but I he puts he puts what's going on together quite well and handles it in a way that I. I think is like the best return volley that he could give to Swear and Serve. Yeah. About what he's done.
1: I'm, I'm glad that they have him do something like this too, because we've been talking about the last few episodes. He's just sort of like there. He's not really doing much. He's engaging when when he's on screen. But as far as his role in, in moving the story forward, he his whole, his whole character is sort of just someone who's not really thinking fourth
0: dimensionally. Yeah. Other characters kinda, have been. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, I was just it's kind of hanging back, and, and, and like he has that whole speech, I think, in the last one about how at the end of the day, he's not doing anything innovative. He's just selling booze and women. Yeah. and while, it, while Al is trying to pull all these strings and, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So to have him actually make a move with an eye towards the future, Yeah, um, I think is, is a good move for him as a character.
0: Yeah, Tolliver doesn't even hear because Silas has that uh, dialogue with Al where he's talking to him where he he says that the people in Yankton think that Al is the guy in town that they have to deal Mm. with. They don't think it's Tolliver. Yeah, because Tolliver has mostly been defined outside of his few bursts of like rage and everything, but he is mostly serving as the character that some of the other characters are trying to get away from. So he's not... He hasn't been actively doing things outside of trying to make money, but the storylines that the other characters have in his orbit like Joni and Eddie are their reaction to him as a psychopath that he is.
4: Mm-hmm. Me and Jimmy Irons, we stole the Chinaman's dope. Chinaman's courier, he lost his life. We slammed dope for a series of days. Now Swear Engine's tough captured us. And in the bathhouse, we drew straws and Jimmy Irons drowned. Is that about cover it? If you ask me specifics, I may be able to come up with some more details.
2: Was Al and holding the straws, Leo? Yes, sir. He
4: said to tell you what I seen.
2: And now is he holding
4: the strings on you? Sir. Are you here on his instruction? I'm telling you what I seen because you asked me to. What'd they do with Jimmy Irons? They give him to the Chinaman? I guess they did. They wrapped him up and took him out. Swearinger turned me loose. But he'd just give me this, so I stayed in the tub until I got my bearings. That's a hell of a way to treat a white man, ain't it, Leon? Being fair, I'd have to say I gave Mr. Swearingen provocation. He traffics in dope. So uh, I guess you could say that I stole his property and fucked his action up.
2: I'm talking about Jimmy Irons in connection with getting delivered to a chink, regardless of his fucking transgression. I see. And in that connection, I'm saying, it's a hell of a way to treat a white man. I see. Do you agree with me? Yes. So it's your own opinion, too?
4: Yes, sir. Well,
2: that's your new fucking job, expressing your own fucking opinion. (laughs) I can do that. (laughs) With conviction, Leon. Your job is to voice your opinion with some oomph and some character behind it. Or you'll wish you got drowned in that bathhouse.
4: All right.
0: Yeah, I'm just impressed. He, he reads Leon correctly. He sort of gets through everything. He, re- he recognizes that Al sent Leon back with this. Like, the whole reason why he came back is because Al wants to say something to Sai. Um, mm-hmm. He does what Al was concerned would happen, which is that he picks up on the fact that... Um. Uh, they killed, uh, you know, in Tolliver's Willview. They killed a white guy at the expense of a, a Chinese person, and that's not something that could stand. I even like that whole in- interaction where it's a, it's another mirroring of Sai and or uh, Alan Sai, where Sai is talking about uh, how horrible it was that Jimmy Irons was killed, uh, the white man Jimmy Irons was killed instead of uh, to, to appease the the Mister Wu, and Leon thinks that he's talking about him. He's like, no, I i made i i antagonized al and he punched me for it and so he's like no fucking idiot i was talking about uh, the guy who actually died so that, that's a funny uh, crossover between those two it is
1: also a very al kind of scene where Tolliver's is sort of indirectly directly talking about what he wants leon to do yeah
0: um not saying directly kind of- what he wants like not ordering to do something but just insinuating it you mean
1: Right, yeah. It's the kind of thing that they have Al do a lot, but but Tolliver Tolliver's usually a little bit more direct, I feel. Yeah. Um You come to that own
0: your own fucking opinion, Leon.
1: <laughs> <yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do, Mr. Tolliver. Uh
1: also I still I have a lot of questions about uh what's Ricky J's character's name? Eddie? Eddie Sawyer. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about his plan to <laughs> Fund Joni's new place by very slowly stealing like <laughs> eight bucks <laughs> at a <the> time <laughs> or whatever. He also talks about chips. it quite
0: quite loudly in the, the I know. casino. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's
1: talking about it right as everything else is going on. Like, you got to say,
0: Eddie. <laughs> what are you talking? About? It's Joni Stubbs that he's
1: stealing fine. from the casino, but he's stealing the chips, yep. which I assume he's going to have to cash, cash out. <laughs> and so at some point, someone's going to be like, "Hey, you want Eddie, a lot of chips?" C- yeah, Eddie keeps cashing out a lot of chips. I don't see him playing any game, Mr. Tolliver. <laughs> Eddie Sawyer. What a piece of trash. Eddie, Eddie, those chips, those chips look like a young boy to you because you've got your hands all over them. <laughs>
0: You got to take that. You got to take that back, Sid. <laughs> well, goddamn, Eddie, I apologize for what I said. <laughs> you know me, Eddie. I get a drink, I get a little bit crazy. I, I love how booth's voice when he talks so to these good. people. It's so funny. Yeah.
1: It's so good because all of his dialogue is is so much like the the traditional uh, abusive husband or whatever who's like you know how i get <laughs> but I just, I just i just lose myself sometimes and yeah. and then you know i take it out on the people i love and eddie i love you
0: <laughs> he is he's just so you know that don't you eddie the the twang in his voice is just so perfect for it It's just his uh his like elegant look paired with his sort of sinisterness is just actually yeah. you know the, the the bad actor move would be he would be twirling his mustache every line he says and he's smart enough oh, to not yeah. actually do that but
1: i kind of wish he would that's a hell of a mustache <laughs> So I think it's just a, uh, the holdover from the one he had in Tombstone.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he looks so much younger in Tombstone. He's he's aged quite a bit. I mean, it was he's sick, f- obviously, fifteen
1: years, yeah, 10, twelve years before. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Was it? Yeah, I guess it. Because when did Tombstone? Ninety-three. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, ten ten years, something like that. But obviously, yeah. And as we mentioned, he was uh, he had gotten sick with cancer for the year before, mm. and that will obviously make you uh, age. Um, yeah, he's. So Cy continues on his his reign of terror. He he Leon does a little bit too effective, not maybe not effective, but he's a little bit too loud about his his <laughs> announcements about the race war. That's coming. I know
1: Leon's like Leon's like Fox News over here, just <laughs> screaming about the Chiron. the Celestials taking their jobs and shit.
0: God damn it, you know, Leon! Just tone it down, brother. He tells him, pulls him off to the side. Tells you him, sound like, like, you sound like a goddamn pillow salesman, Eddie <laughs> Leon. Yep. So that's that. We'll uh, we'll see how. I, I honestly don't remember how that resolves itself. So I'm interested to see how that goes next episode. Um, and then I guess it's just Al is our final thing. Is there any other mm. any other characters or scenes that we've missed? Um, I don't think so. Not really. There's that one.
1: I mean, kind of continuing on the the side thing when Joni comes back, and he's like, "You have any?" have any luck finding a place and she's like no oh, yeah. something he's like well you might want to look at chinatown because yeah. they might not be here that much longer <laughs> she's like what are you talking about oh nothing price is right jody
0: still definitely nothing to do with leon
1: causing a race war
0: <laughs> twirls his mustache yeah i mean the the price of real estate is going to she'll be able to get a home inspection on those houses quite I yeah i would not be i would not be concerned yeah it's um the the show hasn't really gotten into it, but the uh, they sort of bring it up here when when Alma's father mentions about like how do you maintain the gold claim and Seth has that idea that like it's common common law around here is like as long as you're on it and doing something you kind of own it. It's very difficult for people to come and take mm-hmm. you. Uh, just aside that that felt very uh, apropos with um who knows if it's going to happen, but as we're recording this, like the the Trump uh, New York case indictment that mm. is either is or isn't going to happen. But I was just struck by um, Bullock's line about like people around here wouldn't really give a damn what a New York court, court thought, which I thought was representative of 50% <laughs> of the country at this point. Um, but yeah, they, they don't. Um, so like Bullock is I'm, j- I'm just I'm sort of interested in how property was managed back then when they didn't have a. Law system to to yeah. provide it like ha, like I'm a, I'm a little struck by Hostetler so like Hostetler is a black man who has somehow picked up all the prime real estate that everyone's tried to buy which right, strikes yeah. me as a little bit unusual uh, they talk about maintaining the gold claim and then they just talk about like buying the property from the Chinese. They're like Chinatown, essentially. It's just the, the property rights thing is something that the show doesn't get into, but I find it interesting that people actually manage to hold on to their property in any way.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. It is it is kind of funny when you think about how all the uh, uh, all the lengths that Al goes through to kill, um, what the fuck is his name? Alma's husband, Brom. Yeah. But even after he does that, he's like still beholden to the fact that he never signed the contract anybody yeah. else yeah and it's like well i mean who gives a sh- like i mean technically yeah i guess if you kill everybody who could possibly own it then nobody's there to stop you from owning it but yes. there is this weird honor system almost going on yeah well you can't like anger
0: they, he can't anger the town right by doing right. something like yeah. that yeah
1: it's like there's they they still even though it is very wild west there is this understanding that as crazy and fucked up as everybody is, they still need to hold on to some sort of civility, even yeah. as twisted as it might be.
0: Yeah, yeah, like just the—I guess it ties into the idea of running a business in town—is kind of like, you know, people tried to rob from the Bella Union, like Miles and Flora, and stuff like that, and people get killed on the roads and everything. But there is a—it's, uh, I guess, it's what Milch just talked about. It's that pre official civilization that comes in humans just will yeah. naturally form these kinds of relationships with each other um it's like it's like natural.
1: it's like how kids will adhere to the rules of shotgun
0: right like it
1: is the fucking constitution of the united states <laughs> where you could be in a fist fight with someone but if they call shotgun before you do you're like you know what fair i X respect square. it yep i respect it that's, that's but I'm going to get you on the way back.
0: <laughs> the kid's running to the door to be the first. You, you got to operate where the you have to be able to see the car. If you can't see the car, you can't just yell it. Yeah, I mean,
1: it. yeah. There's all I mean,
0: all sorts of things. Because where does it end? Right, right.
1: If you can't see the car. Calling shotgun, 15, 20 minutes before you leave. Yep. That's just an arms race. As a shotgun, <laughs> That's a real cunt move, Teddy. <laughs> Now I'm gonna call shotgun. But what I want you to do is, I want you to go out when you see the car. I want you to start a race war. <laughs> is that some kind of fucking Toyota, Eddie Sawyer? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: um, you're just gonna let you. You're just gonna let Dad drive around the Mitsubishi.
0: <laughs> the last character, I guess, is Al. What'd you think of Al in this episode? I thought this was a real interesting episode
1: for him in a way that is. It's completely in line with what they've been doing with him up to this point, but they just go even further into this um the lower levels of him as a character and as a person through showing how his feelings actually manifest. Like that's I think that's the most brilliant thing about the show is is taking this Al Swearingen character who could very easily have just been more like Cy Tolliver and more kind of, uh, um, one dimensional. Not that size one dimensional, but you know what I mean. Yep. Um, sing, yeah, single minded, myopic, single. Yes, single myopic and like hard to read from an outside standpoint, which makes him that much more shifty and, and squirrely. And they've decided to really show you how this guy processes human emotion in whatever fucked up ways that might be, but you still are seeing these things that are like the seeing how affected he is by the, the reverend is just like, I've, I can't remember another character like him that they've given so much, uh, internal struggle when it comes to him watching this other guy suffering and Al at the at the same time, both not giving a shit and also being completely heartbroken by it because he has. We know that he has this some sort something like this in his own family history. Yeah, his brother. And was it's sick. just and watching and seeing the way that he responds to finding out that Saul and Trixie are together is just so brutal and gross. But at the same time, you kind of sympathize for him because his heart's broken a yep. little bit. Yep. And then, not to mention the final scene of the episode, which is like, <laughs> if in it's almost it's almost like a parody of an Al Sweridgen scene, but it's 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 just it's really good. It's it's a really crazy scene.
0: That was the um, yeah. Al is uh, so before we we can probably end with the discussion of the final scene because there's a lot of like post there's a lot of like production notes about that scene and everything. Uh, Al is progressively through the episode getting more and more irritated and being sort of pulled apart in different directions from the Magistrate Claggett and trying to coerce Silas to be on his side and to fix these things, uh, down to Trixie leaving to go be with Saul and not him, his abandonment there. Uh, So it's really, you know, for what I find uh, sort of refreshing about it is that it's another case of the show being subtle, uh, which is that a surprising, maybe not all, but s- certainly the majority of characters, or at least a, a huge proportion of them, are have t- damaged backstories to them. And the show never focuses on it. Like a lot of it is just inference of what's going on. I think Alma is a good example of that. Like I don't think the sexual abuse thing is stated outright in it, but mm-hmm. the clues of her interactions with her father seem to imply very strongly to me that that is one aspect of her father that she had with him. And there's uh, mentions of Bullock's parent, his father. I think if they haven't talked about that, they they uh, they eventually will bring that up a little bit. There's uh, the women have all been abused. There's the rape of uh, Calamity Jane that she talks about sort of briefly. And it's like so so subtly that when we talked about it, it's like it's almost unclear that what she's actually talking about actually happened to her. Right, right. And the show is, you know, I just, you know, it's not, not always to go back to Star Trek, but Star Trek Discovery had that episode where the girl was like, I, I fly the plane and no, one's, no one says anything to me about it. Right, And right. it's like, it's so, it's nice to just see, like, obviously the, the reason that when you talk about something like Discovery doing that is not to sort of uh, belittle the difficulties that people can have and can drive them as a character. But it's largely unrealistic to bring things up that way, I think. Like the the way that the characters act in this show is driven by their disturbed backstory or the thing that has like affected them or the thing that they're running from or the thing that they are scared of happening again in the case of Al. And it motivates how they act in the future, but they don't just outright say the thing that's going on. And so that leads into the ending scene which was apparently the first scene in the show that they had they had to have like production meetings about because people were unsure if this was going too far in what he was doing. Sure. Um but it is Al replaces Trixie with a younger girl. He forces her to blow him as he recounts the story of buying her from the orphanage that he got her from, which was the place that he came from, which is where he killed the guy in Chicago at the start of it. And that's what's driving the warrant against him. And it's also like deeply personal about um, Milch's backstory too. In that like, if you, if you read the Deadwood Bible about um, Milch's relationship with his parents, which is that he kind of felt abandoned by his mother uh, his father was largely abusive and not super helpful to him. His parents didn't help him when he was apparently molested at uh, like a Jewish camp that he was sent to over the summers. Thanks. And his mother ran for mayor, and Swearingen brings that up in this monologue that he's talking about. So it's this, uh, and apparently the, the the writing staff took thought that the a ditch full of cum was a was a, a line too far for even that's, the show. That's a pretty intense line, yeah. yeah. And so, so it's it's all this going together. It's and it's it's just resulting in Swearingen is basically forcing a girl to stay with him so that she can't leave him, while recounting the story of the the horror he feels and the betrayal he feels of being abandoned by his mother at that orphanage as she went off to be a sex worker in Chicago, mm-hmm. and. It's just he's he that's sums up his relationship with Trixie, which is that he can't stand to lose her and he's not willing to let people go like he his abandonment is what drives his desire to control everything else around him. And it's the reason that he's such a string puller um, and it just it culminates in this sort of like really raw, aggressive scene that's uncomfortable, but is, is so well written and just like clever at the same time I don't know it's a, it's a really special ending And it is a very swearing y swearing scene uh, But I think it's impressive I'm glad they included it In the show I think it makes sense And it's uh, I think they did As best of job That they could with it
3: The place where I found you Huh? It's where this Warren's farm Could you believe that I may have stuck a knife in someone's guts 12 hours before you got on the wagon we headed out for fucking Laramie? No, because I don't look fucking backwards. I do what I have to do and go on. Whoa, 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 whoa. You got a stagecoach to catch or something, huh? Slow the fuck up. Did you know the orphanage part of the building you lived in, behind it, she ran a whorehouse, Huh? So, you, you knew, so. So, what are you fucking looking at, then, huh? Okay. Now I'll tell you something you don't know. Before she ran the girls' orphanage, fat Mrs. fucking Anderson ran the boys' orphanage on fucking Euclid Avenue. Because I'd see her fat ass waddling out the boys' dormitory at five o'clock in the fucking morning. Every fucking morning after she blew a stupid fucking cowbell and woke us all the fuck up. And my fucking mother dropped me the fuck off there. with was seven dollars and 60 some odds fucking cents on her way to sucking cock in, in Georgia. <laughs> and I didn't get to count the fucking cents before the fucking door opened. And there... Mrs. Fatass fucking Anderson, who sold you to me. I had to give her seven dollars and sixty odd fucking cents that my mother shoved in my fucking hand before she hammered one, two, three, four times on the fucking door and scurried off down fucking Euclid Avenue. Probably thirty fucking years before you were fucking born. Then around Cape Horn and up to San Francisco, where she probably became mayor or some other type of success story, unless by some fucking chance she wound up as a ditch for fucking come now fucking go faster
1: <clears throat> yeah i mean it's <clears throat> it's giving you all this information in a way that is consistent with how they do it in the show where it's not it's not like a TV show where someone sits down and tells you the story of how they were abandoned by their mother. He's just in this drunken rage fueled, um, emotional breakdown. And he's just, he's just talking to himself basically. Yep. And he's saying a lot of stuff that he understands, but not necessarily something that is easy for the people watching to understand but at the same time he's giving you all this information that as you're watching it you ki- you start piecing it together and realize oh shit okay i see what's going on here yeah this is this is pretty dark and pretty depressing and is a is a real insight to to what is going on inside this guy
0: yeah yeah he's uh He's he's talking to the Trixie replacement, but he does he does he does that the that thing of like he keeps asking her questions, but he tells her not to talk, and she eventually ends. Yeah. He's like, "Well, you shut up." Um, yeah, it's uh, he just has to empty his soul, for lack of a better word he has to he has to announce the things that he's been feeling. Um, well, and he, I mean, I think the the
1: thing that makes the uh, the disturbing aggressiveness of it kind of vital is that what he's doing is lashing out and exerting power over someone because he feels like he's been cucked basically. Right. And he has so much, the abandonment causes him to feel powerless. And so that's why you get this scene during which he's essentially, you know, sexually assaulting somebody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just from the Deadwood Bible, because I guess th- I think the scene is important, but they say. Uh, Deadwood Bible says Even actors, writers, and producers Who were used to Milch unleashing his id on the page Were shocked by the scene Ted Mann, who was on set for pre-production for Sold Under Sin His first writing credit after a two-plus year period Spent in recovery for drugs and alcohol In which he and David Milch's paths often crossed Said there were concerns Especially among female department heads and crew That the blowjob soliloquy was wantonly disgusting A ditch for fucking cum was a metaphor too far And that the scene was ostentatiously transgressive those who know a bit about Milch's biography may look at that scene and see him grappling with misogynistic and exploitative tendencies in his character, real and imagined. Milch's go-to alter ego, Swearengin, cannot cope with rejection or, for that matter, accept his inability to keep loved ones within his grasp and at his beck and call. He picks a younger, more pliant replacement for Trixie, a fierce woman who had recently rejected him, and restrains her while she fillets him as he tells a story about being restrained as a child as his mother abandoned him. Dolly is his mother. Trixie is his mother. Every woman in the gem is his mother. Safe beneath his roof, unable to grasp, escape his grasp, and subject to his whims. The scene is about a man who sought, acquired, and abused power in an attempt to control that which cannot be controlled, and undo that cannot that which cannot be undone. His response to his own childhood damage enlarges the circle of pain and perpetuates the abuse around him. Yeah, um, I think it's a great. It, the The other funny thing is that they. He ends it by saying anyways, which I only realized on the second watch that I did that Bullock does the same thing when he exposes that Trixie and Saul are having sex. He leaves the room by saying anyways to oh, really? Swearing, which was a nice connection between the two of them. Huh. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think what's I think this kind of stuff is <clears throat> you can really feel it in these shows when it's done for gratuity's sake. And when it's done for a, a reason that actually uh, is character or story related, like the the one that I, I that always sticks out to me is I tried watching The Shield. Did you ever watch The
0: Shield? Just the first episode, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I had a friend who's like the field. The Shield is made. You got to watch The Shield. And watching The Shield. In I was probably I was out of college, and I mean the Shield was on in like the late '90s or something, right? In the early 2000s. yeah, it was
0: early uh, it was was Shield before or after The Wire? Was it inspired by The Wire? Oh, I don't remember. It feels like it might be after
1: The Wire because it, so it it was when two thousand two to two thousand two, yeah. It was when the FX network first started up, and their whole thing was like we're closer to HBO than regular
0: cable yeah we're like the we're like the the, like the pg-13 version of hbo basically
1: yeah and like the shield was the first big pushed show if i if i remember correctly yeah and i watched this first episode and it's like this feels like a high school kid who just realized that he can say fuck a bunch. You yeah. know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it feels, it feels like they're pushing the envelope for the sake of pushing the envelope. And I watched, like, maybe three or four episodes of The Shield, and I just couldn't do anymore because there was this one scene where the guy who I think – I think it's the mayor of L.A. gets caught up in this thing where he ends up killing a drug dealer. And then he – Ends up in the situation where another drug dealer is holding him at gunpoint and forcing him to blow him while he holds a gun <laughs> to his head. And I was like, "What the fuck is going on in this show?" And like that feels like that feels like sensationalist for sensationalist sake. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this, I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, it's you're not supposed to walk away from this feeling great, but I, I can't imagine if you're if you're coming at this in good faith. Yep. watching the scene and being like and not getting why they did it the way they did it
0: yeah 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 it's <laughs> uh, the 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 shield um yeah because i guess you could you can certainly push these things in a uh, unsavory direction sons of anarchy kind of reminds me of that in a lot of yeah, ways they the same do, yeah they yeah
1: I tried to watch that show too. I got like a season out of it. And then I was like, this is just preposterous. Yeah. The first,
0: the first season was okay, but it became, it devolved very quickly. Yeah, Uh, yeah. It's
1: just, it's, it's this weird genre of television show where it's about something that is for all intents and purposes, real, right? Like, okay, sure. Motorcycle gang in LA. I'm sure that there is violence involved. But then, like you get to the second or third season, and they've killed like fourteen hundred people, <laughs> <laughs> and it's all these other pre- preposterous story plots where it's just like I my there's a certain level of uh, suspension of disbelief that for whatever reason some of these shows just I don't have
0: yeah like uh, uh, they go on too parents, long for one thing yeah, yeah
1: that's the thing is they go on too long and they just have to keep getting crazier and crazier like and uh, I love. Or when I used to watch it, I've not watched it in years, but I used to love um, Law and Order SVU. And there was there was a point where I, I kind of had to tap out. Where like the killer ended up being the forensics guy who worked with the team, yep. and he turned into be turned out to be like this complete psychopath, <laughs> sexual killer that they had been working with for the, like the last five years of the show. And I was like, I right, guys. <laughs> But uh my parents have, have been watching Yellowstone and Caitlin's parents have also been watching Yellowstone and her dad started watching it and he's he'd been keeping a, a, a body count. Yep. And it was like this is a show about like owning land in the Dakotas or whatever. Yeah. And there's like there's more people killed in the first five episodes of Yellowstone <laughs> than like the whole first season of dead one.
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, although when does Yellowstone take place? Is that that? It's can't? a modern show. Oh, it's a modern day show. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I um just I I was thinking of saving it for the content consumption, but I guess we can go. Out. I read uh, Bill James, who the the sabermetrics guy who worked for the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. He's also a crime writer, uh, like oh, a true no, crime no. writer, and he's written two true crime books. The first one was called Popular Crime, which is really good, and I recommend. And the one that he I just read. Uh, he did the man from the train, which is uh his explanation as to why he thinks that there was a serial killer in the early nineteen hundreds who is probably the most prolific serial killer in American history oh really, but because our understanding of what a serial killer was back then, it just it never clicked like he he came mm-hmm. about at the right time to um accomplish the crimes that he did but It was this sort of of weird thing just about like figuring like how how murders are different across time where um, he was a a killer who would break into families' houses at midnight basically through always doing the same thing. He would come in through a back window. He would take a lantern that was in the house, take the little chimney like the glass bit off the top of it and lay that separately Mm -hmm. and walk around with the lantern very low and he would kill all the family members with the blunt side of an axe. Like, he he would, oh. he would find the axe in the yard, and they think that that's one of the reasons that he would pick a family. And he would always kill them with the blunt side of the axe as opposed to the sharp end of it. And they never caught on, but all his murders were like this. Mm-hmm. And eventually, w- like, before they understood that there was such a thing as serial killers, they still believed that, like, all murders have to happen for a reason. So... They would mm-hmm. connect the dots that a bunch of families were murdered hundreds of miles away from each other in different towns, and the police would just end up going, "How do all these people know each other? You know, like what's the <laughs> yeah. common what's the common thread?" Because they yeah. they would just not accept the fact that sometimes there are just people who will kill randomly for whatever right. reason, and yeah. that there might not be a reason. But it was interesting, and it just it ties into that sort of. Um, uh, I, I just connected to Yellow Jacket just because, or Yellowstone just because of the like not understanding the 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 murder rates that you can go through i guess in the olden days
1: yeah that's not what's it called the man on the train the man from the train from the train yeah he would ride uh, the train between
0: uh cities basically
1: where did it okay so it wasn't like one area no he started
0: in uh well so the ending of the book is the reveal that james describes who he thinks actually did it he's he identifies somebody Oh, uh, but so spoil. Well, it's not spoilers because you're not going to know. But like, he actually, you know where he's, you know where the first kill they think happened. Uh, Poughkeepsie, Worcester, Massachusetts. No shit. And I just read that, and I was like, oh my god, that's obviously where I live. But um, yeah, they think they started here. You better lock your doors. I know he might still be out there. Yeah, i probably probably take him at this point. Uh, he went down to Florida. He went across the Midwest. He went up through like the D.C. area and back down. Mm. He traveled all across. He made it to Washington State and Oregon and stuff like that. Wow! Um, And he would just... Oh, that was the other thing about all of his murders. They were all very close to railroad tracks and a lot of them were intersecting railroad tracks so that he could commit the murder and then quickly get to a train that was going by and then just Mm. be gone before anyone had discovered the bodies.
1: Wow. Yeah, that shit's crazy.
0: Yeah, I... um, Coincidentally...
1: Uh, uh, last podcast in the left just started a series on this guy I'm about to talk about. What when I was last summer when I was reading um, a book about Joan Joan of Arc, I came across one of her compatriots, which was this guy Gilda Ray. Yep, which was a name I had heard of, but I didn't really know anything about him. And I looked him up, and he is simultaneously like a legitimate badass medieval war hero, and also possibly the most prolific child rapist murderer in history
0: yeah yeah
1: and it's like it's one of those things where it's just like the no one had the capacity to understand exactly what he was doing or yeah. how and also he was like a he was uh a royal as well or at least he was he was an aristocrat yeah privileged so you to could, protect it. yeah yeah but it's 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 wild where at a certain point you know you could really get away with anything, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: definitely could. it's the the just the dead to deadwood traveling between towns you just there's a chance you- you fifty percent chance you're not gonna make it traveling between towns, I think
1: yeah someone's gonna get you, yeah, and the only way sometimes the only way you get you get caught is if you ride back to town and start blabbing your mouth off like yep. that
0: dumbass from the first episode, <laughs> yep yep, all right, I guess that's it. Thanks everybody for listening. This is the penultimate episode of Deadwood. Jules' boot is made for walking. This is the something pretty podcast. You can support us at patreon.com slash the Penske file. It's the best way to do it. Patreon.com slash the Penske file. Let us know on uh you can join the discord too, to let us know what you think about the season so far. Let us know. Let us know. Let us know. We're almost done. Clay, do you have anything you want to say before we go? Uh, watch out for
1: Gilderay. He's still out there. Yes. Um, no, yeah, check out uh, Rotten Heart Picture Show on Patreon or in general. Uh, on Patreon, we're doing the video nasties this year. And uh, G- January was Tenebrae. March, sorry, February was Possession. March is Flesh for Frankenstein, which should be coming out pretty soon. If if this is, what, is this going to be out soon? How oh, this
0: weeks? is probably out next month. We might, we might oh, be in okay. the next movie, yeah. Well, March was Flesh
1: for Frankenstein, and it was great probably i don't know (laughs) something to chew on I, i i did i did have um we just put up our last rotten Horror picture show episode uh night of the comet and um someone had commented on the video on on youtube saying is this the one with commander chakotay from voyager in it yep and there was a number of reasons why I felt like that was a dumb question to ask. Sure. And so I just answered with an equally dumb answer, which I said,
0: I don't know. I haven't listened to the episode yet. <laughs> I did listen to it, so I know the answer to that question. Don't I, tell him. Uh, I won't. Don't tell him. I won't. I'm just letting you know that I know yay or nay to your question is, is in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, before we go, now that I'm, now I'm thinking about the man on the train again. Um, so there's a question in the book. Uh, was this person brave or courageous, I guess? And uh, it just gets you thinking about, like, imagine breaking into a house in the middle of the night in the dark, right? Like, this is 1900. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing going on. Like, you, you're walking around by a lantern in the middle of the yeah. night. And you kill... Like the Veliska murder. Have you ever heard of the Velisca murders? They're one of the cases in this that people don't, never seem to connect. I don't, but they killed I don't like think so. It's like six people in a house that were killed by this guy. Where, was, where did that happen? Iowa. Oh, no. Not another one. Velisca Iowa. Uh, and you go in and you find your axe and you walk around. You, let, you take a lantern from the table and you walk around these people's house while they're sleeping until you find the master bedroom and then you kill the parents first right? Mm-hmm. You hit him in the head with an ax and then you go around and you kill all the kids who are still sleeping in their beds and stuff like that. And you're wandering around in a strange house doing that, you know? Yeah. That's fucked up. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> but it's also, it's weird. Like, like James just talks about like, he was obviously a coward uh, and like he was very risk averse and everything. The serial killer, or at least he thinks he was, but it's also like I would shit my pants breaking into somebody's house like that and yeah. like walking around and and expecting like and these creaky old houses where you go up the stairs and the thing sounds like it's like cracking under your feet and stuff like that like what the yeah. fuck Well, I, you know, I think I think there is
1: something to be said about whatever is deeply broken inside the person that does this. Yeah. I'm sure there's some wires that are not crossed or crossed incorrectly that I mean, that's probably part of the thrill.
0: Yeah you know just to be it's I like mean, watching a horror movie in some ways like you're waiting for the scare, like the tension is what drives you to yeah, do it or something yeah yeah,
1: yeah i mean th- that's the thing that's so wild about those stories too is 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 it's a lot of times those stories are are less scary uh because of the actual act and more scary because you can't wrap your mind you can't wrap your your own rational mind around the the actual thing that happened right like the why of it like i mean that's the whole thing with in cold blood kind of right is it's just for seemingly no
0: reason no good reason
1: these two guys went into this house and just killed this whole family
0: yep 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 i think that's
1: part of what makes true crime so interesting to people too is because you you try to rationalize and and figure out
0: what it what it is that drives
1: a person to to do this kind of thing
0: yeah and you can never really know obviously for most of these people or at least you can get hints of what it is but you can't really relate to it so that's it thanks everybody for listening Jules' boot is made for walking is the final episode and the next one is called sold under sin it's the season finale so we'll be back next week with that thanks very much
5: understandable her late husband was so taken with my daughter (laughs) I didn't know him very well, but I certainly recognized his doting infatuation. I didn't know him at all. I'll admit that I had hoped she might find a man who would dote on her and more. Perhaps had a surer sense of what the world was. And apparently, I'm entitled to hope that again. My wife and son will be joining me soon. I'm long past judgment, Mr. Bullock. And I've learned that no matter what people say or how civil they seem... ...the passions rule. I see no reason why your wife and son's arrival need alter my hopes... ...for my daughter's happiness or security or the security of her holdings. I'll say goodnight, Mr. Russell,
4: with thanks for dinner.
5: That will disappoint Alma. I'm sure she didn't think she was saying goodnight when we left for our walk. She'll be all right. If I've offended you, Mr. Bullock, I've accomplished the opposite of my intention which would not be an unprecedented result. I just want to say good night. Of course. Good night, Mr. Bullock. Good night, then. Trust me to explain to Alma I'm a practiced
4: and inveterate
5: liar.